Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So Psalm 72 is where we're going to be. And, you know, uh, all of us who are parents, we all know what it's like to pray for our kiddos when they're moving into a new season of life, when they're launching out into something, when, when they're just moving into that, that new arena. It, it's been graduation season. And so, uh, you know, many of us have kids who have graduated, are launching off into that new world. Maybe you know somebody who is entering into that new phase of life. And we desire for our kids to be okay. And so we pray for them. Lord, would you keep them? Would you bless them? Would you give them wisdom? Would you just help them out? Now imagine if your kids were not maybe graduating from eighth grade to high school or or even graduating from high school and going on to college or trade school or many of the things that, that our kids are doing. Imagine if your child was going on to be the president of the United States of America. Imagine if your child was going on to be a, 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 a judge sitting on the Supreme Court. That'd be pretty scary, actually, from high school to the Supreme, yeah. Uh, but that's what's going on in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a, a coronation psalm. And it's a song, it's a prayer, where David really is praying for his son Solomon as he takes the throne, saying, Lord, please give my son the wisdom. Lord, help my son to uh, rule in, in righteousness Help him rule uh, justly. Lord, would you please help uh, my son? Now, uh, Psalm 72, it's kind of interesting because some translations, the superscription there, some of the the superscriptions, the kind of intro to the psalm, some of them will say uh, a song of Solomon, and some uh, translations say a psalm uh, for Solomon. Uh, There's a big difference in those two things. A psalm of would imply that this was a psalm that was written by Solomon. But a psalm for would imply that this is a psalm that was written, uh, of course, by somebody else, David, for his son. Now, now which is it? What's going on? Uh, Is it a psalm for uh, Solomon or is it a psalm of Solomon? So uh, we got to stop for just a second because there's some poor people right here that are just in the spotlight. I don't know what we got cooking with the lights. Dave, maybe you could figure out why we have some spotlights going on, Gary and Linda and Bruce and Lori. I'm not sure. I think we turned on some lights we didn't mean to turn on. Uh, Not to put you guys on the spot. But you know when you see people putting their sunglasses, there you go, sunglasses on at night in the sanctuary, we got a problem. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. So which is it? Was it written for Solomon or by Solomon? And why does it really even matter? Well, it's interesting. If you turn to the last uh, verse... In this chapter, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. It's pretty straightforward. It really tells us uh, that this psalm is a psalm that was written by David for his son. So so why would would there be this confusion? Why is it translated in two different ways? Well, there are those that would say, well, this couldn't be written by David because it speaks too clearly of the events that took place in Solomon's life. It really speaks prophetically of the events. How would David know about those things and how they would go down? Well, David didn't, but the Holy Spirit did, right? The the prophetic aspect of the scriptures 
is what sets the Bible apart from all of the other religious works in the world. And we've talked about this to great extent, that it's not just kind of an ancient text that is dead. It's alive, it's living, it's transformative, and it's filled with prophecy. One of the key components in the Bible is that it says, I'm going to call out these events that are going to happen in the future with great specificity before they ever happen, thereby letting us know, giving us something that we can lean on and say, that's definitely God's word. We know it because nobody can call out the future except for God. And so that's one of the things that people say, well, you know, there's no way. But clearly we see that this is a psalm of David. And again, that's debatable. There are people who are smarter than me who would disagree, so just know that. But it seems very plain to me that this is a psalm that David wrote, and that's the way we're going to approach this psalm tonight. But more than just being a psalm that David wrote for his son, looking to Solomon's reign, it looks beyond that. Again, as we look at so many of these psalms, there are layers. It speaks to what's taking place historically during that time. Uh, that would be Solomon's reign. But it also speaks to the future. Uh, there is a prophetic aspect that looks towards the end when Jesus rules and reigns. It looks beyond Solomon's reign and looks to the greater than Solomon, Jesus, and when he rules and when he reigns. And so it, it really is kind of cool. We're going to, again, kind of get into this millennial reign, this millennial kingdom, this event, this season that's still coming up. It's in our future, hopefully our near future, uh, but it is still coming up. Another layer that I want to let you guys know about before we move forward in the, the, the chapter here, 72, is that this chapter is actually the last chapter in the second book of Psalms. As you guys know, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. But the interesting thing, and why I say there, this other layer, is that the, the five books of Psalms, they kind of correlate, they relate to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it's interesting, as you look at the end of Exodus, it ends with kind of the Holy Spirit coming and, and the glory of God filling the tabernacle there. And then here in uh, Psalm 72, the end of the second book, the book that correlates with Exodus, we see the Lord coming and ruling and reigning and his glory uh, here on the earth. So uh, very interesting, and I haven't talked a lot about that, um, I don't know that I will, that correlation. Maybe as we close up the book of Psalms, we'll do a study on that, because it really is interesting. In your spare time, if you're looking for something to kind of geek out on, that's kind of a cool thing. So you can check that out. But uh, primarily, Psalm 72, it's just David, a dad who loves his son, who's launching out into a new season, saying, Lord, please give my son what it takes to rule and reign righteously, Lord, please. And so uh, with that, verse 1 of Psalm 72. It says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. And so David here uh, again, he's just saying, Lord, give my son, the incoming king, the ability to rule rightly, that he might be a defender of the poor and, and the needy and the oppressed, that there might be peace and prosperity as a result in his reign. You have to remember 
David had worked uh, very hard in his kingship as he served the Lord. There was this aspect where David, he, he, he's an old man. This is kind of it. He's on his way out. And now he's looking back and saying, oh, Lord, really for the people's sake, for your sake uh, of the kingdom, let my son rule righteously and justly and good. And those, those prayers were answered. I mean, Solomon, uh, he did rule very wisely. He did rule justly. He did, uh, you know, um, defend the poor and the needy and the oppressed. And even as it says there in verse 4, that he will save the children of the needy. He did that quite literally, didn't he? There in 1 Kings chapter 3. Remember one of the first things that King Solomon did as a king that really displayed his wisdom. There were two harlots that lived into the same house. And one gave birth, uh, they both gave birth, really just a couple uh, weeks, days apart. And the one woman, she accidentally smothered her child in the night. And there in the middle of the night, she took her dead baby over to the, the baby that was, and she did the old switcheroo. She swapped the babies in the middle of the night. So the next morning, uh, the one mother woke up and she's like, what's going on? My baby's, and this isn't even my baby. What happened? You stole my baby in the middle of the night. Remember the two women? They took their case to Solomon because he was the king. He was the, the judge. And he asked both of them, what's going on? And both of them said, this is my baby. She ripped me off. This is my baby. She ripped me off. And you remember what King Solomon did? He said, all right, bring me a sword. The only way to settle this is to cut the baby in half, like you do with a Snickers bar and your kids. You know, you just split it in half and everybody is happy. But that wasn't the way it was. Remember, the one woman was like, no, 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 don't, don't cut the child in half. Just, just give the baby to the other woman and, and let the child live. Have mercy, king. The other lady was like, all right, I'll take half. <laughs> and King Solomon was like, okay, I know who the real mom is. He, he literally launched into that, uh, his kingship, uh, defending the poor and the needy and to save uh, the children is what he really did. Uh, but he ruled righteously. He ruled uh, justly. And what a wonderful thing to, to think about as we consider uh, King Solomon's reign uh, and really looking past King Solomon's reign to Jesus' reign to just think about, man, how wonderful it's going to be when we have a government that is righteous. When we have a king that rules justly. And I don't know about you guys, but I am so sick and tired of a government that upholds and promotes wickedness and perverseness. It's not even just a government that tolerates perverseness now. They're promoting and forcing it upon children, upon our communities, uh, upon parents. It's insane. Uh, there's a bill that's going through California right now, AB 957, whereby it will make, uh, basically, if your child wants to transition, if your child wants to mutilate their bodies, and as a parent, you say, I think it's a bad idea, daughter, son, if, if you go through these medical procedures, if you stand in the way of what they call uh, affirmative, or what is it, affirming care, uh, then that now, if this passes in California, will be considered child abuse, and it will be grounds for removing your children from your custody. I, I, you have to stand back and say, what on earth are we doing? How have we come to this place? But to imagine a, a government that is just and right, and rather than promoting wickedness, man promotes goodness, I long for those days. And when I read chapters like this, I say, oh, Lord, 
how encouraging it is, what a reminder it is to us. Because I'll be honest with you, I have a tendency to get a little bit grumpy sometimes when I read stuff like, oh, yeah, you want to bet? And how are we going to roll up our sleeves? And what are we going to do? And But that's not the attitude we're to take. We're to pray, we're to be salt and light, and we're to remember that the Lord has a perfect plan. And in the end, he's going to rule and reign, and things are going to be all right. And so uh, Solomon, he was one who ruled and he reigned uh, rightly. Verse 5, they shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So speaking of his reign, it's going to be this wonderful thing. It's going to be so refreshing, like when the rain falls on the grass and nourishes the grass. That's what the reign uh, of Solomon is going to be like. And under his reign, he's going to fear the Lord. And as he fears the Lord, it's going to encourage the people to fear the Lord. Uh, fear of the Lord. What does that mean? Sometimes we can kind of get that phrase a, a little bit confused, like fear of the Lord. Uh, we're not to, to fear the Lord as though he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can squash us like little bugs. Oh man, I'm afraid the Lord's just going to take me out. Uh, I, I've met Christians who have this view of the Lord where they're very afraid that God is going to just snuff them out at any moment, that he just can't wait for them to mess up. That is not what the fear of the Lord means. When you hear fear of the Lord, replace that word fear the way we use it in our current vernacular uh, with really reverence, with respect, with honor. Life and death are in the hand of the Lord. There's no doubt about that. But to fear the Lord means to honor the Lord, to reverence the Lord, to respect the Lord. And Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So smart. And, and here under the, the rule of Solomon, uh, boy, the people, they fear the Lord. They follow his lead, and they, they follow the Lord. Again, how encouraging it would be if the government encouraged us, hey, are, are you going to church? Are you walking with the Lord? Could you imagine? I would just fall over right where I stand. If we just got a letter in the mail from the city of Wairika, just checking on you, wanted to see how your walk with Jesus was doing. What? But Solomon, he was to encourage the people. That was the role of the king. Uh, That was what he was supposed to do. That even, again, as the the dew, the rain falls on the grass, the grass grew and flourished and was, was green. I mean, that's all grass needs, just water. And when you water grass, well, you gotta mow it. And you gotta mow it again. You gotta mow it again. I mean, you give grass enough water, you guys know what I'm talking about. You just have to mow it all the time. And that is the idea that this grass is flourishing. That's what it would be like, that the king just encourages the people in the Lord so much that they would just be flourishing. And again, that was the role of the king. That was God's plan for the kings of Israel. Uh, There in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can turn there if you're quick on the draw, or you can just listen as I read it to you. Um, It says this. When you come to the land, God speaking to his people, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. Also it shall be when he shall sit on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and of these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the left hand or to the right, and that he may uh, prolong his days in the kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. And so this, this role of the king, right? Now, remember that God's plan for his people was not to have a king over them. His perfect plan for them was that he would be their king. That was the whole thing that made Israel different from all the nations of the world, is that here's this little tiny, really nobody nation, and they've got this relationship with the creator of all things, with the, the, the creator of the universe, with the king of kings, with, with God. But they wanted to be like the other nations, and God knew that they were going to do that, and so he, he put some guidelines. How merciful. He knew that they would not walk in his perfect will, but he, he made guidelines for them to walk in. And that those kings, that they would not be about trusting the things of this world, but that they would trust the Lord above their wealth, above their horses, above their military strength. And the thing I love is that they were to have their own personal copy of the law, that they wrote out, that they wrote it out, and they studied it, and they kept it with them everywhere they went so that they would have that. Boy, how encouraging is that? that? That as the king studied his word, as he walked with the Lord, that he influenced the nation to really do the same thing. And it's interesting that the first king of Israel was uh, Saul. Right? He, he's the kind of king that you would think, boy, he has everything it takes to be a king from a, a human perspective. Right? He was head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. Uh, you know, he was handsome. He came from an influential family with money. But remember, Saul didn't do very good as a king because Saul was more interested in his own will being accomplished than God's will being accomplished. And so the Lord removed Saul and he raised up King David. Now think about King David in contrast to King Saul. Here you have this tall dude, handsome, influential, everything else. Then you have David, who was just a little sheep boy. Basically, he was a little redheaded Step, he wasn't a stepchild. He was just a little redheaded guy out there taking care uh, of the sheep. And that was the job that nobody wanted to do. He was the runt. He was just out there. But David was known as a man after God's own heart. You know, he, he wasn't perfect. But man, he served the Lord well. And it's interesting about that. As you look from the outside and say, boy, that's definitely king material. I don't know about you, sheep boy. You kind of smell like the sheep. But the Lord looks upon the heart. Uh, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the strong. And I love that because the Lord desires to use you to accomplish big things in his kingdom. And maybe say, you know what? I've been, you know, sidestepped. I've been relegated to watching the sheep. I'm really just a nobody. I'm not educated enough. I'm not that enough. I'm not this enough. Whatever. 
But here's the beautiful thing, is the Lord loves to use the foolish and the weak to confound the, fool, or the wise and the strong. Because when you do something for the Lord, he gets all the glory. And you guys know my personal story. I have no business standing on this platform tonight teaching you guys the Bible. I'm, I'm undereducated. Boy, I, I, I'm really just outgunned. But the Lord said, I'm going to raise you up into this place. And I want you to, I said, Lord, I'm not the guy. And I wasn't the guy. But when I walked in what the Lord had called me to do, the Lord said, I'm going to use you. And what an amazing thing is. So, so when you hear something come out of my mouth, you're like, whoa, that was a blessing that was from the Lord. No, it wasn't from me. And I tell you guys that all the time. Oh, that's great. And I always say, man, God is good. Right? Because I know that it's not me. And I'm not trying to be uh, all weird and like, oh, no. I really mean it. Like, it's not me. And I want to encourage you guys. Man, if the Lord calls you into something, even if it's something that you're like, man, that's not my gifting. The Lord will make it your gifting. And so the king's role, boy, that was a real rabbit trail. Sorry about that. <laughs> but the, the Lord here, he, he made this, you know, uh, he laid out how the kings were supposed to, that they were to influence uh, the people as they, they walked. And, you know, the application for that, we might say, well, you know, I'm not a king. I, I'm not in charge of a nation or anything else. And so, you know, what's the big deal? Here's the thing. Every single one of you in this room has somebody that looks up to you. You might not think so, but I guarantee you do. Little brothers, little sisters, children, employees, neighbors. God has given you influence in their lives. How are you using that influence? Are you bringing refreshment like rain to the fresh grass? Or are you bringing just hot air? When you talk to your neighbors, are they like, wow, that guy is refreshing. That guy was, or they say, oh man, that dude's just a windbag. He's full of hot air. Uh, we have influence with people that the Lord has given us. What are you doing with that influence? It's very important uh, to remember that, uh, that we would walk in all the Lord has for us. Um, the beginning of uh, this section, you shall fear the Lord uh, as long as the sun and moon endure. Now, again, there's aspects of this that are very clearly about Solomon. But then there's big portions of this we say, well, you know, Solomon, he, he didn't rule and reign as long as the sun and moon endured, did he? Well, no, because the sun and moon are still coming up, and we're Solomon. He, he's not here, that's for certain. Uh, so this is really, again, speaking to the greater than uh, Solomon. It speaks to the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David that he would have a descendant sitting on the throne forever, and that really is fulfilled in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And so again, this looking past Solomon to Jesus. Verse 8, and he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations will serve him. And so uh, from sea to sea, uh, the king will rule. Now, what is, what is being spoken of here from, from sea to sea? When, when David here says from, that he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, 
What sea is he talking to? From, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea? The Medi- Mediterranean Sea to uh, the Red Sea? Uh, it's, it's this huge, really, uh, swath. It really is from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. The, the river that's being spoken of is the Euphrates. And the idea behind these territories is that it is a, a, a huge swath of land that the Lord gave his people. When they left Egypt, crossed through the wilderness, and entered into Canaan, the Lord said, this is going to be your land. There in Joshua 1.4, God promised Joshua uh, this territory that would include uh, territory that extended from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea uh, in the west. And so it was this huge territory that would include the land from the southern tip of Israel all the way to the Red Sea, to the Euphrates River on the east, right there the border of Syria, to the north, and the land of the Hittites, and then the Mediterranean Sea, uh, the Great Sea, to the west. It's this territory that is large. Here's the thing about that territory. Under David and Solomon, Israel's territory was the largest that it's ever been historically, larger than it is today by a long shot. But of all the land that God promised his people, did they ever walk in all that? Did they ever grab a hold of all of that land? And sadly, the answer to that question is is no. They they never did. Uh, Even at its height uh, during Solomon's day, uh, they only had a fraction. Today, if all of the Middle East was a football field, uh, Israel would be one foot on that football field. That's such a tiny part of the overall promised land that they have. And when you think about Israel, and all that's always in the news, you think it'd be this big place. It's smaller than New Jersey, Israel is. Do you know that? That's crazy statistically to think about. But they never walked in all that the Lord had for them. God said, I'm going before you. I'll fight those battles. If you walk in obedience, the enemies will be defeated. All you have to do is lay hold of it. But they didn't. Why? For the same reasons, really, that, that we don't. They were fearful sometimes. They were disobedient. They became complacent. They became comfortable. They enjoyed ease. And so they really never walked in all that the Lord had for them. And the correlation, the connection... The application for that for us. And we could say the same thing that they could say. That the Lord has gone before us. That our enemy has been subdued. That the Lord has so much for us to walk in. And he really does. He has so much for you to walk in. Every single one of you. The Lord has a plan for your life. People to, to, to reach. Things to accomplish. Things to do. And so often we leave so much on the table. We don't walk in all that the Lord has for us for the same reasons. Because we're fearful because we get wrapped up in disobedience, or because we get comfortable and complacent. But I really want to encourage you to walk in all that the Lord has for you. Those things that trip you up and hold you back, lay those aside and chase after the Lord, because he has something uh, great for you. Uh, and so uh, the, the land that was given to Israel, they never quite walked in it. But when Jesus rules and reigns, they'll walk in all of it which is the interesting thing. That land as described, boy, when Jesus is on the throne, Israel will be all that it really should be. That day is coming. And even in our text, it it speaks of kings coming from from far away to bring presents and taxes and silver and gold and the rest. And that took place in Solomon's day. Remember, the, the queen of Sheba came and she brought all sorts of gold and 
there were many vassal nations that uh, really paid homage and taxes to Israel, mainly because of what King David did in the, the battles that he fought. But did Solomon's rule extend to the ends of the earth? It didn't. It didn't. Again, looking to the future, looking to the millennial, it, it, it really will. And so... Uh, Licking the dust. There, there's an interesting uh, verse in here where it, it talks about the enemies of the Lord. Well, his enemies will bow down before him. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Uh, there will be nobody who will be able to stand against Jesus in that day. Uh, to oppose Jesus uh, would be uh, terribly foolish. Spurgeon says this. He says, Tongues which rail at the Redeemer deserve to lick the dust. And truly, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He will rule with a rod of iron, and, and it really uh, will be great. Uh, and again, this is the millennial reign. Uh, that time that is coming in the future, there's this thousand-year period where all things are, are made right. When Jesus returns to this earth and he establishes his kingdom, when the lion lays with the lamb, uh, you know, when the children play with snakes and they don't have to worry about uh, getting bits uh, and, and the poison. The, the curse of sin will be lifted. Nature will be at peace. There will be no wars anymore. Uh, it says that we will beat our plowshares into, to, or our weapons of war into plowshares. There'll be no, no reason for war anymore. It's gonna be this time of peace and prosperity like the world has, has never known. And, and that's coming, but before that comes, there's the tribulation period where God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But before that comes what? The rapture. The next thing in the prophetic timeline is the rapture, when the Lord comes and he snatches up his church and says, nope, I'm taking you out of here before wrath comes. And so, you know, you don't, again, have to be a, a, a student of the Bible and a, an expert on theology and prophecy to just look around and say, things are getting pretty crazy around here. Things are, are, are sideways. Something's going to have to give at some point. And I really think that that's something that's going to give is that the Lord's going to come and he's going to snatch us up and we're going to be with him. And, and the, the tribulation will happen and, and we'll enter into that sweet period of the thousand-year millennial reign. Uh, but I bring that up because every time Jesus talked about the future prophetically, uh, about that day when he would come again. There was always this overtone of be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. The ten virgins, the, the, the five that were ready and the five that weren't. Hey, be ready. You don't know when the master's coming. Uh, the, the, the parable about the, the wedding feast. You don't know when the bridegroom is coming. The parable about the, the, the rich man who left different amounts of money to his servants that when he returned and he came when nobody expected it. That's the thing. Is, is that we're always to be ready. No man knows the day or the hour. We're not to be throwing dates out there and say, well, look, Jesus is coming then because guys do that all the time, all throughout history. And guess what? They're wrong because no one knows the day or the hour. But we're not to go to the extreme. We're like, oh, nobody knows. I mean, Jesus didn't come in the last 150 years. He's not coming in the next 150 years. And so I'm just gonna kick back and know we're to be ready for the Lord to come back anymore, to live our lives with expectancy. Because truly, the Lord could come back at any moment. And so are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord to come back? 
And if the answer to that question is no, I would say, well, why not? And how do you work on that? How do you change that? It really, we are to be those as Christians who are ready for the Lord uh, to return. Because uh, he's going to, verse 12. Uh, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. So this idea of redeeming the needy, of, of redeeming the poor, uh, you know, there's two aspects to that. There's a very practical aspect that we are to be compassionate as Christians to the needy, right? Jesus, he, he talked about uh, this whole idea that there would be a, a time when, you know, he, he, where his disciples would give food and drink and clothing uh, to those who were in need. And when they did, it was as if they were giving them to Jesus. Jesus laid this whole thing out, and, and, and they were confused. They're like, Lord, when did we give you clothing? When did we give you food? When did we give you drink? And Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. Right? And so there's this reality that as Christians, we're to be those who are compassionate, who are loving, who are caring for the needy. And it's difficult. I mean, you know, the elephant in the room, we have a situation on our hands in our community. We really do. Uh, the homeless population is out of control, and there's lots of things that contribute to it, and there's lots of debates to be had, and you can fall on whatever side of the fence. You really can. But we need to figure a way to navigate. How, how can we be a light to those folks? How can we... Uh, and I come to you because this is something I wrestle with personally because I'm hardwired. I'm a jerk. Your pastor is a jerk. Uh, my wiring says, take a bath, hippie. Get a job. Find some help. Stop drinking and then things will be all right. But those things that people are involved in, alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, there's real bondage associated with those things that I, I, I write off as if they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I'm not helping you because it's just going to go to drugs and then whatever and blah, 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 blah. I don't know that we set up, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. All I'm saying is that I've erred two side on the, the side of grumpiness. I've become bitter. And that's not the Lord's heart for us. And uh, the Bible talks very clearly about being compassionate and taking care of the needy, and, 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 and that's the truth. Physically, there's also that, that reality that we're all poor and needy spiritually. We need the Lord so very desperately. We need a redeemer. And it's interesting that he says there uh, in verse uh, 14, he will redeem their life from the oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood and their sight. That their lives are precious to him, that he would redeem them uh, from their terrible situation. Isn't that what the Lord has done for us? And the idea behind the Redeemer is the Goel, is the kinsman Redeemer. You guys familiar with the story of Ruth? That's what it's all about, this beautiful story about this family who leaves Israel, heads to uh, Moab, outside of the promised land, uh, during a time of famine. 
The, 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 the sons, they get married to these pagan women, really. Dad and sons die. The famine is over. Mom heads back to Israel. She tells her, her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. Orpah listens. She stays. She starts uh, a talk show. No, it's Oprah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Seeing if you're paying attention. Uh, but Ruth, she goes. She says, oh, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That beautiful story. But when they get back to Israel, you got to understand, to be a widow, to be a foreign woman, they were destitute. They were hopeless. They were, they were in a bad situation. But then there was Boaz, picture of Jesus, the kinsman redeemer. He had it with, it was his right as the next of kin. And you guys know the story. There was somebody else that was closer and he went and he worked some stuff out. But, but he was the next, he had the right to redeem them, to lift them out of hopelessness, to lift them out of oppression, to lift them out of that place. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what this speaks to. And I'm so glad that the Lord has redeemed me. I'm so glad that he cares for my life. Aren't you? And I sure hope you are tonight that the Lord has redeemed us. That which was headed for the trash heap, he's purchased with the most precious commodity ever known to man, with the precious blood of his own son. Um, the Lord has redeemed us. And, you know, this idea of compassion and, and uh, of helping the needy and really everywhere Christianity has gone in the world, the needy have been uplifted. The needy have been helped. The oppressed have been liberated. And that might kind of seem like, duh, like no kidding. That's uh, a no-brainer. But the truth of the matter is the Bible in our modern culture gets a bad rap. When you talk to, you know, the college-age generation, there are things that are being taught about the Bible that, you know, the Bible is against women and the Bible is pro-slavery and all these things are just absolutely not true. Everywhere that Christianity has gone, people have been uh, liberated. Uh, it, it really is important that we understand that. And so Solomon here, man, uh, his own reign did not live up to this uh, potential fully. Uh, he was one who was wise. He was one who uh, ruled rightly. He defended the poor for a season. Uh, but do you remember what happened at the end of his reign, right before the two nations split, Rehoboam and Jeroboam? There was this argument, and the argument was really about the way Solomon had treated his people. Uh, and so after there was a split, the 10 northern tribes and, and the, the two southern tribes said, listen, if you will lighten the load on us, man, things will be okay. And that was recorded in 1 Kings 12, 4. Thy father made your, our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve you. Uh, Solomon did not live up to, to what he was uh, originally setting out to do. He didn't live up to the way that he started. Um, in the end, he was one who laid a heavy burden on people to uh, accomplish his goal and to build his own kingdom. It was really a bummer. Solomon turned from the Lord in his later years. You know, he's the dumbest wise man that ever walked the face of the planet, I always say about Solomon. Um, but the truth of the matter is that people will just let you down. You know, if you put your hope in people, you will be let down 100% of the time. It's just the way that it goes. People will fail you. I will fail you. 
The people that you love and depend on will fail you. Not because they want to or mean to, just because we're flawed individuals. The king will fail you. The government will fail you. The Lord will never fail you. And that's the important thing to remember uh, in that. Uh, Verse 15 uh, says, And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made continually for him, and, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth. On the mountaintops, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And so uh, he will live. Again, this is kind of this prophetic statement that, that he will live. Solomon lived, but Solomon died. Jesus lived. Jesus died on the cross, and three days later, he rose again. It's almost, uh, you can hear this uh, statement just echo uh, throughout the, the future prophetically until the cross of Calvary that he shall live because he is risen. Uh, again, the God that we serve is not like any of the other gods of this world. Uh, like we talk about every Easter, you can go to Buddha's grave, you can go to Muhammad's grave, you can go to Krishna's grave, but you can't go to Jesus' grave and see his bones. All the other graves, can. There, there's remnants but not with the Lord because he is risen. He's not dead. And the resurrection, again, man, the resurrection is so important. It's foundational to what we believe. If Jesus didn't conquer the grave, then he wasn't who he said he was. This idea that Jesus, you know, put on the table the option that he's not God, he did not give us that option. Jesus did not give us the option that he's not God. Jesus didn't give the option that he was uh, just a good teacher or a good prophet. He was either God or he was a liar. That's it. And the resurrection proves that he was God. And the thing about the resurrection is that it's so easy to defend from a, a Christian standpoint. Of course it's under attack. People, the resurrection, really? Come on. But do you realize that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? He hung out. He talked. He ate. They touched him. It was crazy. Resurrection, super important. Uh, in, our, in our faith. Uh, basically, this goes on, talks about all this abundance and prosperity. Again, looking to the millennial reign. Interesting little line where it talks about the fruit growing on the mountaintops. Where does fruit grow? Fruit does not grow on the mountaintops, people. I'm just telling you, you're not going to find a pineapple tree uh, up at 7,000 feet. You know what you're going to find at 7,000 feet? Some elderberries, if you're lucky. And I'll tell you what, elderberries are overrated. I, I mean, prove me wrong. I would be glad to have some elderberries that you made taste good, every time I eat a handful of elderberries, they look so delicious, don't they? Big old dark purple clusters. They're terrible. They just are. The point is fruit grows in the valley. Uh, But during the millennial reign, things are going to be so abundant, so fertile, man, that there's going to be fruit growing all over the place, uh, even on the mountaintops. And again, his name shall endure forever. It's not the, the name. It's not the person of Solomon. It's looking past Solomon to the person of Jesus. And then we'll close out with these last few verses. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen, amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so King David just closes out this praise. And he was just moved with praise 
as he considered the greatness of God. And I hope that that's true of us. Man, I hope that we are just when moved with praise. When we consider the greatness of the Lord, do you consider the things that God has done for you often? Man, I hope you do. It's so easy to just, man, keep trucking in life. Be like, man, I'm saved and, and, and I'm grateful for that. And we get sucked into our projects and our things. And, but do we remember? Do we stop and say, that's right. Lord, you've been so good to me. It causes us to praise the Lord, and I pray that we really are a people of prayer because he does such wondrous things in our lives specifically. Again, the whole earth filled with his glory, looking to the millennial the millennial kingdom, looking towards that time. Because Solomon, you know, his, again, his reign had his fair share of glory. It really did. But it ended, and his legacy was really not that good. Remember Solomon, uh, after him, there were like, you know, 39 different kings. There was the nation split, and out of all of those kings, there was like three or four good kings. Five. It depends on who you talk to. You can debate out, you know, who were the good kings or not. But it wasn't a good legacy, really, at the end of the day. But when Jesus' kingdom is revealed... When Jesus rules and reigns, boy, it's going to be a glory like we've never seen. And I don't know about you guys, but I am looking forward to that for sure. And so uh, these are David's last words. This concludes this whole section. And uh, again, this whole psalm, it really is just a dad who is, uh, you know, praying to the Lord for this next season in his son's life. Very important season. He was going to be the king of Israel. Uh, Nonetheless, praying, Lord, bless him. Uh, help him to lead righteously, help him to, to rule justly. But again, those things weren't fulfilled in Solomon's life, but they will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus when he comes back soon, when he rules and reigns, when he establishes his kingdom on this earth. And so when you look around at our world, and you say, oh man, things are getting bad. You can say, oh man, things are getting bad. I need to tell some people about Jesus. I need to let my light shine And man, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and I'm going to be ready for him because he could come at any moment. And so don't get bummed out. Don't get discouraged. Don't get irritated. But as you see the world falling apart, let that be a reminder that, hey, Jesus is coming, coming soon. Am I ready? Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.